0: Welcome to the Real Life Resilience Podcast. Stories of recovery from life's most difficult trauma with Stacey Brookman. Any time that you have known shame. When you know that there is a reluctance to enter the details, the nature of the story that you have suffered, when it's hard to hold that event and allow your heart to grieve and allow your heart to know freedom, those are just some of the signatures that indicate that your brain still holds even today, maybe 20, 30, 40 years later, some of the vestiges of trauma and therefore it implies very clearly there's still work to be done.
1: This is Stacey Brookman and I'm glad you're listening to Real Life Resilience, the only podcast that connects you with the world's best resources for becoming a resilient person. Today's podcast is the first in a trilogy of interviews from the folks at the Allender Center in Seattle. The Allender Center is an amazing place and they're passionate about bringing healing and restoration to a hurting world. It's right on point in the world we live in because everyone has been hurt in some way. Before we discover more, let me share something with you that might change your life.
0: You've been through tough times in your life, we all have, but there's a powerful truth. Your stories will reveal wisdom that you don't know you possess. The question now is, where do you start? There's a simple, tested step-by-step flow for discovering your life theme and putting your life into a beautiful story. A story that allows you to be the best possible version of yourself. Register now for Stacy's next free webinar where she reveals the four simple, proven methods to writing the first chapter of your life story this week. Simply click on the link in the show notes or head to stacybrookmancom webinar
1: love to hear from listeners personally, and I answer my own emails. So drop me a line and let me know what you found interesting in this episode or to ask me a question. My email is stacy at stacybrookman.com. Now let's connect with Dr. Dan Allender, the founder of the Allender Center. So first of all, I know the Allender Center is passionate about bringing healing and restoration to a hurting world. Can you tell me a little bit about the Allender Center and how you bring about healing and restoration?
0: Well, Stacy, thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you. We have an executive director, which is Kathy, and then an actual managing director, which is Jeanette. I'm one of the founders. So in that sense, I get my last name used as part of the work we get to do. And the Allender Center really goes on to say the Allender Center of Abuse and Trauma. So our work is primarily to address the heartbreaking reality that nobody, nobody goes through life without some level of violation and assault. Mm -hmm. And so how we acknowledge, how we address, how we name, and how we care for the reality that we will all know trauma, and even more so, we will know moments of very significant violation of our honor and dignity through abuse. That's really the work of what we're about.
1: And that's amazing. I've experienced your story weekend. I just came from there this past weekend. It was amazing and incredible and overwhelming and beautiful. So I thank you for putting on programs like that.
0: It was an honor to have you there as well as to be with you now.
1: So the people who come to the Allender Center have some sort of trauma in their lives. And often it starts in childhood. How do you help people recover from that trauma? And the secondary question is, can one recover from trauma and turn that into a thing of beauty?
0: Well, we certainly have Isaiah 61 that speaks about the coming of Jesus and what it means that he turns ashes into beauty. So to start with the second question first, I, I do believe there is the probability. If we are engaging the story that we need to name, there is the possibility of great change. Instead of, uh, in many ways, being overwhelmed by despair and questions and doubt, it is possible to enter into that in a way in which our heart is captured, really, by the goodness of God in the land of the living. Mm -hmm. And as the psalm says, we would have despaired if we had not seen in many ways the rescue of god in the land of the living so if we start with the assumption that everyone no one escapes the hardship and the heartbreak of living in a fallen world True. and that violation of of design and desire and expectation is where we begin to say trauma is when your world has come into upheaval and where there is no shall we say quick way to restore the disruption. Now we're in the middle of what the brain experiences as trauma. And we know that in many ways there are physiological, there's certainly psychological, but there are spiritual realities to any experience of trauma. And we've got to address every domain and dimension of trauma if it's going to be moved into something in which we can see true rescue.
1: And that seems a little scary, but I know you take people through a process to discover that. So what is one of the first indications that one has a story to uncover? Because if you say pretty much everyone has a story, perhaps of trauma, how do you know you had some trauma? I, I know we as human beings have a huge capacity of pulling the wool over our own eyes. So what's one of the first indications that you have a story?
0: Well, anytime that you have known shame. We can almost say that shame in and of itself is trauma, but it's also a byproduct of trauma. When you know that there is a reluctance, a deep reluctance to enter the, the data, the details, the nature of the story that you have suffered, when it's hard to hold that event and allow your heart to grieve and allow your heart to know freedom, that, those are just some of the signatures that indicate that your brain still holds, even today, maybe 20, 30, 40 years later, some of the vestiges uh, of trauma. And therefore, it implies very clearly there is still work to be done. Mm -hmm. We have that phrase, time heals all wounds. We know by brain science that is just not true. We might be able to adapt and seemingly live beyond But we've not entered in and found a way to truly resolve or to come to some resolution with regard to the harm we've endured. So trauma is simply living in a fallen world. Abuse is the experience of some form of violation and injustice in the midst of that trauma. And so when you combine the two, I can say without question, no one escapes trauma. Most people do not escape abuse. Those issues have to be addressed very forthrightly, naming what occurred, who brought about the harm, what did you experience? What does your brain do then and now with that? And as we begin that process, you couldn't have put it better. It's frightening. right? It sounds like the disease or the cure is worse than the disease. And yet, the byproduct of not addressing it is a lack of wholeness. And therefore, lack of joy.
1: And that was going right into my next question. I know my listeners are saying, why even is it necessary to dig into our stories? What if we just forget? It's kind of in the back of our minds anyway. Why do we really have to dig up old hurts?
0: Well, think of it this way you broke your arm and you didn't have it properly set, but the bone will cohere eventually. It may not be as God intended, but it will reattach. However, You won't have the use of your arm the way God intended. Now, we are given by God this great adaptational ability to, in many ways, make use of what we have. But why would we simply adapt when we could grow to mature and know deep and profound healing? And I think that's the issue with regard to so much of our past trauma. We've learned to adapt. We've learned to deny we've learned to cover over, we've learned to sort of pretend that these matters are not having an effect on our relationships, on our own sense of identity, and even our relationship with God. But it is. absolutely So when we finally allow ourselves to admit, and sometimes, as we said, it takes decades to admit we're not doing well, we are struggling, we are seeing the effects of that heartache be played out then we've got to at least have the courage to take a turn to look at what we've been running from and allow, literally, to allow Jesus to be with us as we step into the harm that we've done so much work to escape. That now needs to be entered,
1: and I can attest to there is so much joy on the other side. Like you mentioned, the word joy—it is healing. Joy is all I can describe it as amazing. Once you, if you work through that, and
0: it's doable. I'll say such a perfect phrase. That notion of mm-hmm. you have known joy in the midst of your own heartache—it may not be for most people. The basis to take that first step. But oftentimes it's unrequited and unaddressed pain that actually opens our door and heart to the potential for joy.
1: Right. Now, I know that you've talked a little bit about the brain and some of the things that happen in our brain when trauma happens. Can you describe that for our listeners and kind of give them a sense of part of this trauma? is actually something
0: physical that happens in your brain. Yeah, and we'll, we won't go into great detail, but let's just say that when trauma occurs, the left prefrontal lobe, which is the part of our brain that shapes and controls our ability to develop language, to think, to make choices, fundamentally goes offline, which is why we often stammer, stumble in the midst of trauma, why we don't think elegantly and make often good decisions because we really have a portion of our brain deeply disrupted when we're in trauma. And many of us do not know how to care for ourselves. When we are in that kind of language barrier blocked, stumbling, we pressure ourselves, we work harder, we we get angry at ourselves. And so when we begin to learn, now that's part of what happens in trauma, your brain Portion of your brain that regulates speech really goes offline. That's one of the reasons why we don't usually have kind of full fledged memory with regard to the things that have happened in the past. It's literally shattered. Your memory is shattered by Mm -hmm. the disruption of language. And the second thing that happens is we get numb. Our brain literally just sort of gets palsied and numb as we go through it, our emotions get numb. And then we're more susceptible to despair, to depression, to fear. What's often viewed as the right side of our brain actually controls more images and impressions and sensations. That takes over as our left side of our brain seems to go offline. And as a result, we're bombarded by broken shards of images and impressions, in many ways, just negativity. Mm -hmm. We need to know that's normal. But we also need to know that we have ways to care for our brain, for our body, for ourselves when trauma hits. Now, when it's 20, 30, 40 years ago, that becomes even more important to understand that when you re enter those memories, you are going to have some of the same fear, emotions, sensations, body sensations that you had in the actual trauma itself. So we need to learn how to be kind kind to our brain, kind to ourselves. You know, when Scripture says, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance? It's a central concept for how we engage our hearts. Most trauma leads us to judgment and contempt for ourselves or others. Very antithesis of kindness. When we allow our hearts to become kinder, not, not full-fledged, Uh, resolved. But even kinder, what we find is we have more access to what we feel, more access to the damage, and therefore, more openness to allowing the Lord to actually enter those portions to bring about healing.
1: And you've said before, when you're an adult working through these things that may be happened in adolescence or childhood or even young adulthood, you have more of the language now, than you that you didn't have, so you could speak for that younger
0: self. It's also another portion we know about the brain. We literally split off cells, and we have, if you're traumatized at age eight, there's an eight year old brain that you have that probably has not been addressed since you were traumatized. Mm-hmm. And that brain has the capacity at times to rule over the other older portions of you. So, that fragmented memory also creates fragmented selves. So, how we as, for example, a 40-year-old, 50-year-old, male or female, cares for that younger 8-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old traumatized boy or girl, it becomes a very central way, in the same way that we care for a sore throat and we do good things for that cold that we're developing. Mm -hmm. It's not a lot different than in terms of how do you care for this broken part of you as an 8-year-old, 10-year-old girl. And to the degree that we are judgmental or actually refuse to even acknowledge that 8- or 12-year-old exists within us is to the degree that we end up trying to get on with our lives, and then end up doing even more harm and damage.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Further, you you say that typically there are three to five stories that shape our lives as we grow up and They're so powerful that we start to make decisions on our lives and how we're going to live on the basis of how those stories affect us. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
0: Well, I say three to five, there could be 300 to 500, but we know that there are at least three to five stories of significant shame that bound your heart to certain ways of living, to certain kind of, how do I escape How do I shut down? How do I find relief in the midst of feeling so utterly alone? And so many times we fail to see how the story of decades ago continues to shape something of our way of being in our relationship with a spouse, with our children, or just in the normal day-to-day functioning. So if we can see the themes of a past story and how they're being played out today, it gives us a chance to not only at least disrupt the way we have normally, normally attempted to handle our lives. And begun to mm-hmm. ask questions like, you know, why do I get so afraid at this point? Why do I get so angry? Why do I shut down? And as we begin to ask kind and generous questions of our own heart, we're really opening our heart then to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us, that we can begin a dialogue with God. We can begin that dialogue with the younger parts of us and ourselves, but far more important, the dialogue between us and the living God allows our hearts to come to a a new way of seeing and, frankly, a new way of being in the world.
1: And I love that. Part of what I've discovered in my 40s is I never raised my hand. I didn't raise my hand. And that was something built in from childhood that I shouldn't speak. Nobody should be aware of me. And it's affected me my entire adulthood. And so I loved discovering that because then I could change it. That was a huge revelation for me.
0: And no doubt, those particular themes that you just named for your life have very significant stories that solidified those themes Mm -hmm. into a way of relating and interacting in classes or in other things. Oh, absolutely. And we don't need to just know the theme. We've got to get back into the roots of that theme, which are the elements of that story. What was the scene? Who were the characters? What happened? What was the plot? And how did your heart come to then make... These these agreements and vows that you are not perhaps bright enough to be able to ask questions, mm-hmm. or it is dangerous to ask questions. When those stories begin to get unearthed, now we're presented with another possibility for how our our younger self, but how we as this composite self we are, can go into the world in a very different way.
1: You help your future self by digging into your past self. Yeah.
0: That's a brilliant way of putting it. I love it.
1: So if our listeners were thinking, okay, I've got some, I may have some issues or I have some things that I haven't really thought about, what are some of the first steps they can take to start digging into their own stories?
0: First and foremost, I would say, let them continue to listen to you <laughs> uh, because you're inviting people into the nature of story and what is a story, how to engage story, how to write story. <laughs> (laughs) We find so often, and research backs this up to the nth degree, when you write about some of the very significant stories, just the writing alone begins to change some of our, really, our brain bioprocesses. Right, changes our sense of affectance and power and goodness. But we need, we need good guides. And that's why I would say the work that you're doing, Stacey, is just so hopeful. Oh, thank you. They certainly could join us on the Allender Center. We, too, have a blog. We have courses, online courses. First and foremost, you need to be able to let your own heart turn. Stop and turn. And begin to look at those stories that you have written off as already resolved, already forgiven, already addressed. And basically say, none of us in this life are ever done. We're never done done. Mm -hmm. Once we begin to say, and what more am I to learn? How am I to engage these stories with far greater kindness, honesty, openness? I think what most people will find is the Spirit of God will take you into the matters that you need to address. And be faithful to the small. Be faithful to the smaller stories, and let the work itself take you eventually to the bigger ones that need to be addressed.
1: Wonderful. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom. I know you've got deeper things that you bring in your workshops, you've got the Healing the Wounded Heart program, which is amazing as well. And I really thank you for what you're doing in the world in combating that shame and helping people tell their stories. I really appreciate you being on today.
0: Well, I'm honored. And anyone anyone who engages story is an ally of ours. And so we just hope that people who are listening take more carefully and honestly and honorably their own story.
1: Welcome to Stacy's Journal. In this segment, I let you peek into my journal as I share my thoughts on a topic or resilience resource. Today, I wanna to talk about naming our hurt, naming what has happened to us. Dr. Allender touched on this in our interview. Often, we don't have the names for trauma and shame that has occurred in our lives. Sometimes because we've buried the events in the memories, or sometimes because we've denied what happened to us and sometimes because people have told us to get over it or we try to minimize the damage. But as we carefully step into our hurts and write about them, we start to find specific words and language for what happened. The interesting thing is, as soon as you find words to describe your trauma, it starts to lose its grip on you. It separates you from that emotional pain and puts you in better control of your own story. That is the first step to healing. I encourage you to name your trauma, name your shame, name your heartache and your disappointments and your devastations. Take that first step to free yourself from their entanglements. Now, you might want to start by attending my free webinar, The Four Simple Proven Methods to Writing the First Chapter of Your Life Story in Just Seven Days. I'll show you how to easily get started writing your own stories and finding the words you need to start healing I hope to see you there well that's all we have for today in the last episode Radney Foster shared his heartbreak when his ex-wife moved with their four-year-old son to France he explained what he did to stay connected to his child and to resolve the anger so if you've had some heartbreak yourself you might want to go back and have a listen Next week, we'll interview Rachel Clinton, our second interview in this trilogy, as she discusses tending to heartbreak, and I think you'll find it fascinating. I love interacting with our listeners on social media. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. One more thing, we're having fun counting down the 100 most important memoirs of the past 200 years. So our memoir of the day is Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. In 1942, a 13-year-old Jewish girl and her family fled their home in Amsterdam and went into hiding. For the next two years, until they were betrayed by the Gestapo, they lived cloistered in a secret annex of an old building. Brookman's Diary offers a fascinating commentary on human courage and frailty and a compelling self-portrait of a sensitive and spirited young woman whose promise was tragically cut short. Check out Diary of a Young Girl and all the memoirs on this list at stacybrookman.com slash 100 memoirs. And remember, life is a story. It's never too late to start telling yours.